All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody out this morning. I will be covering for Barry here this morning, who's out of town. And today we're going to continue in our study of the book of Luke. We have come at this point in this class to Luke 15. Luke 15. And we'll, Lord willing, cover this chapter this morning and glean what wisdom we can from it. Jesus, at this point in his life and in his ministry, he's on a journey. And where is Jesus journeying to? Where is he headed to at this point in the book of Luke? Jerusalem, which began in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. After the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his destiny, yea, our destiny as well. And it would seem that in these past few weeks, Luke 13, Luke 14, that Jesus is beginning to live out and prove himself to be true of what his mother Mary had said about him back in Luke chapter 1. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts, has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. And that's exactly the point that Jesus has been stressing these past few weeks, Luke 13, Luke 14. And he is trying to get across the message of the value and the significance of those that the world would deem rather insignificant. Uh, Before we get into Luke 15, would you bow with me and say a word of prayer? Dear God, our most holy Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, we are humbled and honored to gather here this morning without fear of persecution. Humbled and honored to gather here in your presence. We pray that you'd be with us this morning, that you would help us to focus our minds and our thoughts and our attention onto your word, and that you would help us to see more clearly the message that you would present for us this morning, that we may apply that to our own lives that it may change us and help us to change the world around us because of your word and because of your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. We've seen that there are great Crowds, multitudes of people who are flocking to Jesus. People who perhaps the religious elites of the time never thought to pay much attention to. And perhaps people who never thought that much about spiritual matters themselves all of a sudden are intrigued. Jesus has caught their imagination. And they have felt some sense of worthiness to Jesus. And they were migrating to him. They were drawn to him because of that. 
In verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, It would seem that the Pharisees and the scribes could not explain away that Jesus was performing miracles, that Jesus was who he said he was, except for one point. And they were sure that they had him on one specific point. And what was that? That they just knew that this man was not the Christ of God because of one thing in particular. What was it? He healed on the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. And he touched people who were unclean. Unclean. Yes. Brother Chip? I think in this case it was because he was eating with sinners. The company. The company that he kept. And it was because of that association that the Pharisees and the scribes knew that this could not be a good man, much less the Christ of God. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And... It is this rebuke that Jesus turns and directs a rebuke to them. Three parables. Lost sheep, lost coin, and the lost son. Three parables from what I could gather that only occur here in the book of Luke. From what I have discovered, there's no other gospel record of these parables. These three parables had a single point, a single message that was directed at the Pharisees and the scribes. This was Jesus' response to their criticism of him, that this man received sinners and each of them. That was the purpose of these three stories. In verse 3, He told them this parable. Jesus said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep? What man of you? What does that imply? What's that? (laughs) What man of you implying that there was no man? This was self-evident. That every person understood What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? A self-evident question with a self-evident answer. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus taught in parables. And he taught parables to try and explain something to his hearers that they did not understand. And he used 
common things, sheep, money, to explain to people about the kingdom of God, but about the nature of God. And if he can elevate us in our thinking of our understanding of the nature of God, then we'll understand better the kingdom of God. After the one that is lost until he finds it, how does, how does this man react? What does he do when he finds the one sheep after he diligently goes out seeking in the open country and he finds that sheep? How does, how does he react? Rejoices. Rejoices. Excuse me? Tells his friends. Tells his friends. There's a need for celebration. How did he not react? He didn't yell at the sheep. He didn't chide the sheep. He didn't beat the sheep. Try to beat it into uh, an understanding. How could you? Don't you know better? It's not what he did. Jesus continues, verse 8. What woman? Again, there is no woman. Every woman understands this. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, again, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus ups the ante. He goes from the lost sheep, one out of a hundred, so one percent, to a lost coin, ten percent, one out of ten. But yet, it was self-evident that whether it would be 99% of your flock that you still had or 90% of your money that you still had, everybody, the Pharisees and the scribes, every person could understand the value of that 1%, the value of that one coin. That was self-evident. Everybody could understand that. And everybody could understand that they knew good and well that if they were missing one sheep or one coin, that they would diligently, concernedly seek until they found that which was lost. When we come to verse 11, we see sheep and coins can be replaced. When he tells the story of the lost son, a child cannot be replaced. And it doesn't matter if you have a hundred children or ten children or two children. A single child is irreplaceable. And this parable is perhaps the most famous parable that Jesus ever taught. And it's this tie, this relationship of a father's love for a son 
that Jesus rebuked but entreated the, the Pharisees and the scribes to understand the nature of the Father. Any thoughts, questions so far? Yes, sir. You know, the Bible tells Jesus and it taught this in Isaiah, I think said this, that it's we don't need to go, we don't need to say, who will go to heaven and get it for us? Who will go down into the shield and get it for us? And Jesus right here just simply states it in a way that we can all understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point, Josh. And so, the parable of the lost son. How many sermons have you heard preached on this? There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. The boy demanded his inheritance. Was this share of the property, was it truly the boy's to begin with? Was it truly his? It was the father's to give to. Was it owed to him? Not until the father had passed. And yet, what disposition, what arrogance to pin his shoulders back and tell his father, you give me my money that you owe me. And there's a lesson there. And yet, the Father, Jesus just said He divided His property between them. What's the message here? The arrogance of the Son demanding His inheritance, and yet, what was the Father's response? What was the attitude of the Father? Excuse me? He gave willingly. He, gave willingly. he was <clears throat> magnanimous in his generous giving to his child who did not deserve it, who it was not owed to. He was not entitled to this. He just gave it to him. How could the father have acted? What could the father have told this young man? No. He could have said, young man, you can keep working until I, I die and you can have it when, when it's your time. He could have shut the boy up real quick, but he didn't do it. The Bible says Jesus said he just gave it to him. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. Why did he want to leave so bad? What was the purpose? What was his hurry? That's 
That's right. There's no sign of abuse, of uh, mistreatment of this boy. He just, he wanted to. And now with a pocket full of money, he takes out to the far country. The boy wanted to be out from under the hand of the father. He wanted to be out from under the responsibilities of somebody looking after him, maybe correcting him when he needed to be corrected. The boy thought that he knew better than the father. And the younger brother wanted to even show his father that he knew better. You just give me my money and I'll teach you a thing or two. You think I don't know better, but I'll tell you I do. The young man was a rebel against his father's will. Despite not having deserved the blessing of this inheritance, he rebelled. And is there not a lesson here for how we can sometimes treat God? Are we owed anything from God? Absolutely not. He gives it freely. He gives it freely. We can't breathe a breath without God. All of these things He graciously bestows upon us, allows us to see, allows us to borrow every day, and we just take them for granted. A heater on, a roof over our head, clean clothes, a car to drive, health. We just take them as that's what's owed to us. This is just the way it should be. And yet, what does God ask from us with all of these blessings that He graciously, generously, magnanimously allows us to see? What, what does He expect from us? To put Him first. To honor Him. That's all He asks. To recognize where it comes from and to honor Him. But instead of the boy honoring his father, he took a journey to a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Some versions say riotous living, some versions prodigal living. But he squandered the money. Why did the father let him go? Do you think the father knew that this was going to happen to him? Yes, sir. Comparing him to our father in heaven, the father, I think, any of us as parents, we would prefer that our children come to us because they love us and they do things because they appreciate us and we're grateful for what we've done, rather than us forcing them to comply with a set of rules. The father could have said, these are the rules. I'm not bending, as opposed to saying, I'm going to let him go, because what I'd rather have is his willing, willing obedience. Absolutely. He wasn't going to beat him into submission. He had to let him make his own decisions. And so it is with God. What would it be like if God never let us make our own decisions? Or every time we look to sin, God jerked our leash. He said, no, we're not going to do that. 
that that's not the way it works. That's not the way God, God made us in his own image and he gave us free will and we have to make our own decisions. That's the way it was all designed. God did not make us robots. He gave us the ability to choose. And do you think this young man, when he went and squandered his property in reckless living, do you think he ever thought about how that made his father feel? How do you think it made his father feel when he took his money and, and left? His father knowing good and well what he was going to be doing. How do you think that made his father feel? He couldn't help but be disappointed. Disappointed? Because he knew what he was going to do with that and the result. Disappointed. <laughs> Even knowing that he's still in Do you think that the boy ever thought about how it was affecting his father? He would like it. The boy didn't care that it was breaking the heart of his father. Yet what was his concern? What was the boy's concern in all of this? Himself. His own selfish ambition, his own desires, his own whatever he wanted to do that day. And that's what he did. And so it is with us and God, our father. We are the children in this story. God is the Father. Do you think that we can grieve God as our Father when we spend ourselves living some life that's not godly? Do we ever think about it? That's right. Ephesians chapter 3 says, Grieve not the Spirit of God. And Genesis chapter 6 said that it grieved God that man had become so wickedly violent. And in some way, when we sin, when we live a, an ungodly life, in some way we are burdening God. We are grieving God. And maybe if we can understand that and have that in the back of our mind, it'll help us with our self-control when we're tempted and what we've been talking about in our Wednesday night class. <clears throat> but chapter 14, excuse me, verse 14, when he had spent everything, so the money ran out, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. <clears throat> the far country takes, but it doesn't give. And can you think of any worse position for a Jewish boy to find himself in than tending to pigs? And what does that have to do with 
the beginning of this chapter. The tax collectors and the sinners drawing near and the Pharisees and the scribes being disgusted in Jesus associating with those people. I believe that Jesus was trying to make the point. It doesn't matter how vile these people may appear to you. I'm going to teach you about the love of God. About the compassion that God has for all people. And it doesn't matter where you've been. doesn't matter where you come from. God cares for you. This far country, does that still exist? Is that a place on a map? <laughs> it's a dark place. And it's very near to all of us. That's true. The far country is a state of mind. And if we're not careful, we can all end up in the far country. We need to remember that. And it doesn't have to be something as drastic as demanding our inheritance and this explosion of I'm going to leave home. And it doesn't have to be that extreme. It could actually be very subtle. And this reckless living, it might not always look like we would think. This far country might not always be a place that's filled with, you name it, criminals, alcoholics. The far country could be filled with successful people that the world would say are good people. And we can slip into the far country step by step, very slowly, and yet we could end up in the exact same position, longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs are eating. Any questions, comments so far? Absolutely. And everything the father knew that he wouldn't ever get his son back until that son hit the bottom. And Absolutely. Irreplaceable. I think it's also really interesting too if you look at the, the person at the sun. He's decided that he, he's at his rock bottom and he's decided he's going to try and fix it. Yes. He's going to go ahead and see if he can hire himself out to someone in that other country. He's going to try and fix it himself. Rather than, you know, he knows his father. Of course, we'll talk about that a little later. But he doesn't want to go back. He doesn't want to admit. He doesn't want to do any of that right now. He's not in that state of mind. He's not ready. He's trying to fix it himself. And as we will read later on, like you said, he, he longed for that. And we will read later on. He finally realizes, comes to his senses, and realizes that I can't do this by myself. I have to humble myself. It was a, a process. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting because a lot of times in the world, those 
people that we know that are, are not wanting to come back right now because they're trying to fix it themselves. They're trying to see, oh, I'll try this, or I'll try that, or this will work for me, or that will work for me, because they, they don't want to say, you know what? And the fact of the matter is that he's been, he's been where it's great. He's been where it's great, and he's, now he's not. So he doesn't want to go He's not humble enough to go back and do that. That's a great point, and he's blinded by pride. And we'll see, we'll talk more about that when we get to the older brother. And that's a great point, because the first, the first thing he tries to do is hire himself. I'll fix it, I'll get a job. If that'll fix it, then he realizes, well, that's not enough. And then he tries to fix it with his father. He just tries to fix it, even though it can still not fix it. He came to himself. What do you think that means? Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He came to himself. What does that mean? Yes, ma'am. He can't do it on his own. He needs God's help. There comes a point in everybody's life Absolutely, and that's the point Ms. Porter was making as well. It's sin is insanity. We are out of our minds if we think that we can handle this life without God. He had to come to his own senses. He wasn't in his own mind. He had to wake up and realize, hey. Maybe my father did know what was best for me after all. Maybe I can't do this on my own. We cannot win without God. And we cannot live, and we're certainly not going to thrive in this life without God. And we're not free without God. The young man thought he was free. That's what he was seeking, was freedom, his own will. He could stay out all night. Nobody asked him when he was going to be coming in. He could lay around and do nothing and... Seems like he did his fair share of that. Nobody made him do anything. But he wasn't free. He was fooling himself. He was a slave. He was a slave to his own selfish ambition. His own desires. But he came to himself realizing his father knew what was best. He was willing to lay aside the pride that has been blinding him for all these days, months, years, and had the humility to admit where he was. And so it is with us. We have to be humble and have the disposition to be able to set our, side, our pride aside and say, hey, this isn't working out like I thought it would. Maybe I need to ask God to make things right. And so, the boy says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Remind you of Psalm 51. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. Saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So, the boy left saying, give me. And he came home saying, make me. He decides to go back home. And in verse 20, 21, we see that the father sees him from a long ways off. What did the father not do? It said that he saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What did the father not, how did the father not react, much like the man of the sheep? How did he not react when he saw the boy from afar off? I knew he'd be coming back. I knew he'd be yep. He didn't preach to him. He knew that the boy was repentant. He knew that the boy had hit rock bottom and he was sorry and that he understood that. The father didn't need to preach to him at that moment because he was going to be telling the boy something he already understood. He didn't ask him where he'd been. He wasn't disgusted at what he might have looked like or smelled like or any of that. He saw him from afar off. And... Seeing him from afar off, there, there's a lot there. Um, I would suggest this morning that God has positioned himself as closely to us as he can. God has to allow us to make our own decisions. He is as close to us, he has drawn as close to us as he can. We have to draw the rest of the way. And if there's some sin in our life that we need to change, it's us that has to do the changing. God cannot change. He is without change. He is absolutely just and perfect and righteous and holy in every way. We are going to have to be the ones who change to conform to His image. The boy says, to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Why do you think the father asked for the robe and the ring and the fattened calf and the, the shoes on his feet? Why, why did he do all of that? That's what you do for your son. That's what you do for your son. And he wanted the boy to know that he was forgiven. The whole Bible is about restoring our relationship yes. with God. There's still consequences to what the boy did. Yes. Overlook that. But he's being restored in his relationship with his father. Absolutely. Like you mentioned, that's what the whole Bible's about. Getting us back into a right relationship and fellowship with the Holy God. And can we know that we're forgiven? 
We certainly can. What the Father did for him was more, much more than the boy ever expected or even desired. Because he was desired to be down here at the bottom of him. Mm-hmm. And yet God <coughs> lavished upon us our salvation and our holy death. And, and the, the benefits and the glory of that are far exceeding anything that we experience. You think he might have been nervous about going home? I know I would have been. And, and that's why some people don't come back. Yep. Because they don't think they're forgivable. And that's the point Jesus is making here. doesn't matter where you've been. The nature of God is that He cares for us and He wants what's best for us and He wants us to be at His table. He wants us all to be at that feast, as we read about in previous weeks with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He wants all of us to be there, eating with him. But we've got to make the decision that we want to be there. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and called out to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. The father was begging the older brother to change his heart to come in. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed you, your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. What a response. What? Excuse me. Pharisees. Yes, the older brother is the scribes and the Pharisees and directly correlates to their attitude to Jesus. The younger brother was the sinners, the tax collectors that Jesus received and welcomed with open arms, who the Pharisees thought were not forgivable, could not be a part of the worshiping assembly of God's people. And yet, the rebuke to let them know, hey, you are this older brother. Look how disgusting you are. But yet he's begging. Jesus gives them this parable to entreat them. Saying the door is open for you as well. But you've got to understand your position. You've got to have the humility just like the younger brother to realize where you are. And to understand that you need to make a change as well. The brother's attitude. What kind of... What, what kind of disposition was this, this, this older brother? Just like the younger brother. Yes, ma'am. I see that the older brother feels like he, he will never do what his younger brother did. Yes. He does not cautious about his own. And that's a good point because, you know, I never disobeyed your command. Now, all these many years I've served. Do you think this older brother never 
He was perfect, never messed up, never did anything wrong. Absolutely not. Blinded by pride. Blinded by his own pride. Yes. thought he was owed more. There was a quote in a uh, Brother Gary Henry's, one of his books, Diligently Seeking God, and stuck out to me, and I, I probably remembered it because it has something to do with a cow, and if y'all know me, I tend to remember that stuff. And I'm not that far off because the fattened calf is mentioned uh, here in this parable, uh, and this wasn't his quote. It was, he was quoting another man, and I don't know who it was. But, uh, and the quote was, Some people want to see God with their eyes as they see a cow and to love him as they love their cow for the milk and the cheese and the profit that the cow brings to them. And this is how it is with people who love God for the sake of outward wealth or inward comfort. That reminded me of this attitude of this older brother. And we have to be careful that our faithfulness, our service to God is not based on contingencies. Lord, I'll live however you want me to live, but you're going to give me what's mine. And it's going to be what I want it to be. That's not the way God works. That's not the way it is. God, His purposes and His plans for us are different than ours. But we have to acquiesce our will to His will, even when it doesn't personally fit, conveniently, comfortably fit into what we, how we would see things for ourselves. And the Father says to Him, Son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The love of the Father. You know, I had a note even in my Bible before looking at this for this class. You know, I'd heard, oh, it's the prodigal son. Well, no, it's really about the older brother. Well, not really. Um... Who is the hero of this story? The Father. The Father. Just as God is always the hero of every story and of everything. This parable began with two lost sons, and it ended with one. Yet the one who was lost in the end is not who we would have thought that it would have been. And that's exactly the point that Jesus has been making 
in Luke chapter 13 and 14. In the parable of the great banquet in chapter 14. All of those who were invited that you would think would be a shoe-in to be at the banquet, they all made excuses. And the master of the house said, go out to the hedges and the highways. God wants his house to be full. And yet, in the kingdom of God, and when that day comes, there are going to be people there who we least expect to be there, and vice versa. Thank you all for your comments. Next week, we're going to pick up on Luke 16, the first half, I believe.